Hey everyone, it's been a while. Welcome back to the Human Condition Podcast. This is episode 9 and it's about values and one value in particular that we consider most powerful in our life. I presume a lot of us have certain values and a value system in which we hold certain values and principles in higher regard than the others or in the highest regard. For some, it is religion. For some, it is honor. Some people value money more than anything else. For some, it is respect. Now, of course, this value differs for every person. And so I thought rather than just me rambling about my most powerful value, I would talk to a couple of friends about what they consider as their most powerful value in life, something that they abide by and have as a core value. It's a good question. Uh, My friend Alec, who features in today's episode, asked me this question and I thought I would just record the conversation and make an episode out of it. Uh, Perhaps you can think about the value you consider most powerful in your life and what your reasons for that are. I don't know. I think it's a good activity to know yourself a little better. Unfortunately, we were sitting in the backyard and it started raining a bit. And I guess the microphone picked up some of it. So excuse me for that. And I hope you enjoy the conversation. Are we good to go, boys? Mm Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about uh, one question, which is, uh, in one word, what's one value in your life that holds the most power? And I'm here with my friends Alec and Jared. Uh, Would you like to introduce yourselves? Maybe start with you, Alec. Hey, my name is Alec. I study semiotics, and I've thought of this question about almost 10 years ago, um, just looking at, you know, what is power? So, in, in one word, what is the one value in your life that holds the most power? And hi, I'm Jared. I'm a student here at the University of Tartu. I study philosophy with a focus on technology. Right. So, we were all students at the University of Tartu. That's how we all met. And so, yeah, maybe I'll go first. One value that holds the most power in my life. I've been thinking about this a lot since I texted Alec and we wanted to do an episode about this. I haven't really given it a lot of thought before because, you know, I I hold a lot of values in my life, but I haven't prioritized them in a way where one value holds more power than the other. But I've been thinking about it for the past week or so, and I couldn't put any value past honesty honesty not in the way where you're trying to tell the truth to others and and you know always not lie to others because that's i think that involves a lot more aspects of you know sometimes you lie to feel validated and to be accepted by others but honesty on a more personal level which is a kind of an intellectual honesty where you don't lie to yourself you don't allow yourself to lie to yourself so I'm not sure if honesty is the right word for it. Maybe perhaps you could call it integrity or sincerity. But the idea is basically an intellectual honesty where you don't lie to yourself. And I say this because that's what has brought me the most substantial amount of change or development in my life. By intellectual honesty, I mean there's different kinds of lies that you can tell to yourself, yeah? And and it's so hard because you're the easiest person that you can lie to. 
you don't have to tell or show your work to anyone else so it's just you and you can easily rationalize your lies and rationalize uh, the things that you tell to yourself and it can be something as small as telling yourself oh i won't procrastinate i'm going to get out of bed and do something which sometimes you know is a lie but also in the bigger sense of things where if you dig a little deeper you can't disregard the suffering and the pain that's going on around the world and the suffering that it causes you as well and you don't have to disregard that and lie to yourself that this is not what is happening you can you can acknowledge that suffering and you can acknowledge those deeper and darker elements of yourself and and become authentic and and uh, make it part of yourself because there's also an existential aspect to it isn't there because when you tell things like everything's going to be okay life is life is good life is easy although apparently it seems like nothing really has meaning and you still try to avoid that fact by saying that no things have meaning and you know i don't know maybe religion is part of that process where you try to give meaning to something that that is bereft of meaning so yeah the existential aspect of it is where you don't lie to yourself that things uh have meaning inherently and you accept the fact that things are inherently meaningless but rather that you provide things your own meaning and give them their own values and accepting that fact has been for me the most substantial change that life has brought me in the past few years and i don't always i'm not always 100% honest with myself i do like to tend to lie to myself sometimes but uh, yeah i'm trying to change that so yeah if in one word i have to say if there's one value that i hold most dear to myself or, or a value that has the most power i would say honesty or rather intellectual honesty and then how would you how would you define what honesty is um like i said not allowing yourself to lie to yourself always acknowledging that you tell yourself the truth and accept the truth and not try to rationalize what so the lies that you tell yourself more so like an internal honesty rather than right exactly expression of truth yep. being correct mm-hmm. okay for me the the answers changed over the years um at first i want to say it was observe because i was very eye opened um looking for different potential values you know and essentially looking for where do these values come from so during this exploration of finding where where the stem value is i realized that the value of being is something that feels very natural for me and the the value of being leads to so many other potential actions such as you know whether it is being um honest or happy or being successful you know all these things they rely they rely on this state of being so essentially by looking for something that i can be currently you know not sort of creating this fabrication on what's needed from me i'm able to to continue doing what's natural for me and that helps live more in the moment and being able to understand how to make this meaning more enriching rather than just waiting for your objective to be complete So you know I've I've asked this question to hundreds of people over the years and 
one of the things that's good to point out, like at, initially, is that this one value is not only what you possess, it's also what you seek. So when it comes to the value of being, you're able to to grasp both of them to an extent. So you can continue being yourself, and you can aim to preserving your identity, um, you know, as opposed to some other values such as like success you know this is something where this sort of external factor comes into play so in order to attain that that value you still have to have this external connection so by relying on something that's already within and already intrinsically just pure for me it just makes sense to continue going about like you know going with that gut feeling essentially that's really what it comes down to Right. So just this sense of just being there. You are present, you are mm -hmm. existing, you're absorbing, you are being. Mm -hmm. Because, like, you know, with meaning itself is something that, you know, it's very subjective, you know. It's it's only, we only, we allow things to have meaning. Nothing has that meaning itself. However, you know, when, when we look at ourselves within and our connection with where we're at currently within this time, you know, it's... It's the mediation of the event, and this leads to just this ever-going chain of symbiosis that um, people's values get connected to. You know, whether it's like, for instance, me coming up with this this question, and just hearing how other people's answers are, and being able to learn from them, and to see like what else is out there. But uh, when you say being, you value something that is, if something is abundant. If something is omnipresent, it doesn't have all that much value because it's always there. To me, value is something that's rare and that's that you cherish. So that's why I'm, I'm a bit, yeah, I'm trying to wrap my head around when you say being because mm -hmm. when you say value being, you're, you're always being, you're always existing, mm -hmm. right? How do you, how is it a value that you put above everything else? Do you mean in a, an authentic sense of being? Yeah, like, do you mean like becoming self-actualization, like having the self-actualization or, or being through your own sense of, like your own conscious being where you you are being Alec and you are uh, being authentically Alec and being yourself. Is that what you mean? Yeah, you know, being? Being, being myself uh, because like, you know, if you, if you think about it and... Once we start having these like these like social connections of like you know you work at a certain job you have to interact a certain way you have to talk about certain things you start losing the these values associated with certain context mm -hmm. and when it comes to like being you know like there, it, it's very easy to let someone else be in control of us mm -hmm. and you know if if you can't change it it's at least good to be aware of like what you are being in control of um, mm -hmm. so you know it's in a way it's about the self-awareness and also about this way how to improve like what you want to do mm -hmm. you know whether it is like your own self-expression as well yeah, like self-reliance mm -hmm. you know, like that's the okay the, the biggest thing in my opinion knowing like what you naturally have when right. were you first struck with this self-actualization of your being Mm, probably around like 20 to 21 like around that and like from like from 19 until like 
I'm guessing the microphone's picking that up. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Definitely. So Alec just presented us with a book that is written. How long ago was this? Maybe six years ago before I was finishing my degree. Okay. Cool. Well, okay, Jared, I would maybe you can tell us about your value, the one value that you hold in most power. Sure. So I would say the value that holds the most power in my life is curiosity. And by curiosity, I mean an intrinsic desire to know. So what I mean by intrinsic is that it's something internal, that the thing that I want to learn, the thing that I want to know is an end in itself. I'm not trying to learn it because it serves some other purpose. It mm -hmm. just is. Right. So perhaps in the same way as Alec was saying with being, I am curious about things just as they are, allowing them to be as they are. Uh, and the reason why this is so powerful and important for me is the fact that the world itself is unknown to us, that mm -hmm. there's so much mystery, there's so many experiences and people and things out there that we just don't know about in, in our own subjective selves. And so to approach this unknownness to the world and this open way, I think, brings a sense of beauty to the world itself. You mm -hmm. want to know about it. You want to learn. You want to experience it. And yeah, I would say that through this, it has allowed me to come to understand and learn things about anything and everything. And it's this sort of passive and active uh, sort of activity. Passive mm -hmm. because I'm just allowing things to be as right. they are, but active in that I am actively reaching out to try and grasp what is it that is in front of me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that kind of aligns with what I was also trying to say, because part of being honest with yourself and accepting the world as it is, is accepting the fact that we don't know a lot of shit. There is so much shit out there that we don't know and we don't need to pretend to know it all. Mm -hmm. But it's always good to stay curious. And when you say it, it brings a kind of beauty with it, I would say it also brings an element of dread with it. As Kierkegaard said, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Yeah, which is when you're overwhelmed with the possibilities of life and when you have an abundance of freedom, you kind of get anxious because you have so many things to choose from you could when life doesn't inherently have a, a purpose or a meaning then it, it's it's anxiety provoking isn't it? it it brings a sort of dread along with it it's it's also beautiful because like i said it's it's liberating to know that okay we don't know a lot of shit no one really knows a lot of shit no one really knows hardly anything uh, about the universe at all but uh, yeah along with beauty it's the dread that it brings along with it. And also when you say curiosity and being curious for the thing in and of itself, inherently curious, uh, I think I would definitely agree with you. And I, and I can see that you probably do value that because you're a student of philosophy. <laughs> yeah. And that's one question I get a lot when I tell people that I study philosophy. They're like, why are you studying philosophy? I mean, I'm certainly not studying philosophy to make a shitload of money. <laughs> that's for sure. 
but uh, because you do some things not as a means to something else, but because you see it valuable in and of itself, intrinsically valuable. Just like I'm sure, for example, with you, Alec, playing the piano, you you probably don't play it because you're trying to satisfy some kind of extrinsic need, but because for the joy of playing the piano itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's, it's it's just like a child having being forced to play the piano compared to playing piano just for fun. Yeah, exactly. I would say. I've got two things to what you said. So the mm-hmm. first thing you had mentioned about this sense of anxiety, and you brought up Kierkegaard and his thoughts on it. And I would counter that sense of anxiety that comes with this with Heidegger's interpretation of anxiety in that it is, in the end, something positive because it is this sort of necessary step in order to understand things. That you have this uneasiness, and through this uneasiness, you seek to learn more, to satisfy this uneasiness. Mm-hmm. That anxiety that we feel from seeing the world, seeing ourselves, you know, makes us see us as ourselves, that we are just one of many, right? And like, what's the point? If I'm just one of many, why should I seek to do anything? But it's through this anxiety that then through our own curiosity that we find the things that truly matter to us, which goes into the mm-hmm. second point of that curiosity and your kind of alluding to this, that curiosity is this source of inspiration and passion for us. Mm -hmm. That Alec is curious about learning piano, and so through this, it fuels the fire for him to sit down and practice. As with everybody, I think everybody has a curiosity in their lives that they seek to learn more about, and without that, they wouldn't do anything. They would just be some nihilists or something. Well, like, so following up about this sort of, like, this evoking of anxiety from curiosity from like the semiotics perspective this relates to charles purse's triadic sign and curiosity itself would be an indexical sign meaning that it causes attention mm-hmm. so it causes what attention 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 okay mm-hmm. so it's the existential sign from the object mm-hmm. so like whether it's footprints in the sand that's an indexical sign, or mm-hmm. you see fire in the distance, or smoke in the distance. Mm-hmm. This is a, an indexical sign for a fire. It's and appealing to something. Yeah, it leads you, it orients you towards the object. Mm-hmm. Um, so a, a lot of our, our daily sort of like stimulus is indexical signs. Who's knocking at the door? Um, you know, is there anyone else else walking at 4 a.m. today, right now? Or mm-hmm. you know, like so. There's all these different things that that lead to curiosity. So when it comes to this sort of anxiety, it can be associated with not not knowing what this like epistemic core truly is. You know what I mean? Because you can you can essentially fantasize and figure out like, okay, it could be this, mm-hmm. and you build up this, you scaffold this meaning to be this but yet it turns out to be something else Mm -hmm. and even with like playing the piano like going along with that when when you improv and you you know you 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 want to make mistakes to an extent you want to find these different chord structures that you haven't played before hearing this chord you know if you're messing up and you hear it sound good this is that curious like okay well like that part was good what can i do to expand on this one little good thing out of this just nonsense, you know. So, yeah, I can, I can definitely see curiosity being a very powerful value. 
I had a classmate too who he, he told me last week his, this was his answer. So the, yeah, that's that's the only time I've heard it. You say curiosity is positive, and I agree with that. Like there there is a positive element to it, but I just think that it comes with a cost, you know, because you have to give up uh, certain things, and and when you look things for the way they are, which is again part of being honest with yourself and and accepting what the world is like, because you know you want to dig a little deeper, and as you dig deeper, what happens is you look beneath this veneer that we call civilization yeah and once you do that you understand how arbitrary a lot of our social constructs are what we mean by success what we mean by happiness these are all social constructs that we have culturally or personally that we construct of what it means to be successful okay you have to do or these and these things in order to be successful or earn money or something like that or you have to be successful in order to be happy and you have to be happy in order to leave lead a life of contentment or a meaningful life and that's also the price that you pay for curiosity right because it fucking leads you into depression <laughs> because you see things for the way they are and the things are not very beautiful once you dig beneath beneath the surface so in that in that book that I hand you one of the things I wrote in it was with pain comes knowledge from knowledge comes pain mm-hmm. yeah. so you know whether it is like trying to analyze this this never-ending chain of like meaning making events you know the semiosis chain um you're always going to learn something more and it's you know you have to you have to limit yourself on what you're actually investigating or else you end up finding something else that you're modeling which is it's it's applicable but at the same time it's something completely different um even then like this this sort of pain factor it you know whether it is like the the physical aspect of pain Mm -hmm. or like this emotional pain it still brings this a state of of knowing essentially um but i have a, a question about like for you about curiosity when did you start cherishing it I think I began to start cherishing it when I was around 24. Mm. I was living in Korea at the time, and I was actually, I I can remember the exact moment that this happened, that I was just like, it just struck me, perhaps in the same way with being. I was out on a run in the middle of this mountain forest side, it was beautiful, and I just looked at a tree as I'm running, and it just struck me as like, what's going on there, right? Like, there's a beautiful living thing right here, a tree that is so essential to the life on Earth. What's going on there? Like, why is this the case? What is going on in the very minute details that allow this tree to be a tree? Uh, And from there, I actually started studying biology. I was actually interested in getting a master's in biology. Obviously, that didn't work out great, but (laughs) it, it was this moment of, like, I cherish this this sense of like I want to learn things and I actually got a, a tattoo to like I guess like remind myself or to like to pinpoint this time in my life that you I had, had an this, epiphany I had this epiphany exactly yeah <laughs> so yeah it's and from there I just continued on being curious until I found myself with philosophy which definitely allows me to be as curious as mm-hmm. I want I mean that's kind of a, a necessity in this field now are you like an artistic person hmm I would say so, yes. I do a lot of writing through mm, okay. it, so a lot of short stories and whatnot. 
And through that, I explore some of the things that I've learned through philosophy, but in this more artistic way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to go back real quick to what you're saying, uh, the, the negative aspects of curiosity, uh, I could see two ways that, yes, it's definitely negative. First, as you guys were saying, you start to learn more about the world and perhaps just how bad it can be at times, mm-hmm. right? You know, we have that term, ignorance is bliss. And with curiosity, you never want to be ignorant. Right. So there does bring this sense of like dread of like, wow, things are not all that great for us. And I definitely agree. And then the second way is just with curiosity in general, this quest of knowledge brings with it results that are both positive and negative. So I think about like, you know, human curiosity has led to us investigating the atom. We want to understand how things Mm -hmm. work on the microscopic level. And through that curiosity of the atom, we ended up developing nuclear weapons that were able to level entire cities. So this sure. this yeah. thing that began as curiosity led to this result that, you know, led to obviously negative cool. results. So I have a challenging question for you. Bring it on. Can you think of any values that limits your curiosity? Hmm. Any other values that I hold dear that run counter to it, you mean? Like... You know, if, if curiosity is this thing that just expands everywhere, mm-hmm. um, at what point do you say, like, no, nah, I can't be curious about this? You know, mm-hmm. what are the value? What are the values associated with this limitation on your, like, you know, the, the exponential growth of curiosity? That's a great question. I honestly, at this point, initially, from hearing this question, I cannot think of anything that would try to limit my desire to know. I don't hold anything else in a higher regard that would make me stop Mm -hmm. some sort of inquiry. So that's why I tried to define curiosity as something intrinsic, because as I see it with an intrinsic sense of things, the the ends in themselves, if I were to run into, say, a friend that was like, ooh, they have a secret I want to learn about, my activity of being curious, as I mentioned, was both passive and active, once the active part of me that says, like, I want to learn something runs counter to the fact that my friend is just this person being, I would come to understand and respect the fact that this is something that they would not tell me. Mm-hmm. And so then I would say, okay, I'm not going to force myself into a line of inquiry that mm-hmm. would benefit me, but also not benefit them. Yeah. Okay, but... Yeah, in, a, in your experience of asking people, hundreds of people, these questions, what did <laughs> so, you yeah, learn uh, from that? I would, I mean, uh, no, I'll gladly talk about this. Um, one one example, though, one, one story I wanted to tell is the time I met this Polish guy at a bar in Tartu. I asked him this question. He was this biologist, scientist, coming here for like a presentation or something like that. He was a cool dude and I started talking to him, asked, asked him this question, and his answer was breathing. And it's like, huh. Breathing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, that's a very unique one. But that one that one kind of stuck because it, it makes sense, you know. Um, because for me, the way I see like what power is and what value is for that matter, it relies on the value of life. Mm-hmm. If you don't have life, you don't have right. any sort of perception of power, and you yeah. can't act on it. You're, you know, you can you can be brain dead mm-hmm. <clears throat> and still be living, but you're not you're not uh, you know transmitting these delta waves to yeah. actually give you any sort of brain function. So, 
in my opinion, this this root of power stems from the value of life. And from that, it emerges into this performance of like what makes us us, whether it's like for me, you know, being, for you, honesty, and then for you, curiosity. These are the things that we kind of align ourselves with. And then we just branch out and create this sort of spiritual tree of like what we are. Mm -hmm. And by creating this structure, we rely on these values that we, we know we can use. And this, transmut this transmutation of energy just gets filtered in back and forth from value to another, whether it is like love, honesty, and faith. Uh, like, because those in, in the U.S., like in the South, those are the main answers I would get. Mm -hmm. You would hear God also, uh, but out, you know, obviously in Estonia, you don't really hear God. Yeah. So out here, it's it has been mostly honesty, I would say. Uh, but then, you know, it's a lot of different random ones. You hear justice, money, success, content. Um, you know, a, a lot of ones that make sense. Um, maybe you just haven't looked at it in that perspective. So it's mm -hmm. very cool to to see how not only one culture comes together, such as relying on God to give them yeah. like this higher meaning. It's much more like sincere when you talk to them about this sort of thing, uh, especially when you put people on the spot about this question. You know, it's such a unexpected question that it, mm -hmm. it throws them off. But then you get the... You get the instances when usually it's people over like 45 that they will just talk for at least half an hour. <laughs> and yeah. because, you know, when, when you ask someone like, you know, in their 20s or 30s, they, they, they know what their value is. Yeah. But they're still figuring it out. Yeah, it's there's no so like you, you have a personal experience associated with what, what led you to this. Mm -hmm. Usually it's more of a, still like in the idea stage. It hasn't been gesticulated to become what it is now mm -hmm. you know like I've heard a lot of like personal stories that's associated with their their individual value like one of them for instance it was a, a lunch lady at my, my last college I would see her all the time she would always be cleaning tables you know I, I, I would always talk to these lunch ladies because I would see them all the time right and I asked her this question one day and she responded with trust and after she explained to me why it was trust she explained how like when she was young she had to give her a child up for adoption she never saw him uh, but one day on facebook a stranger reached out to her and said hey i think i found your son Damn. and when when the stranger reached out to her she was having to deal with like her, her son, her like son that was living with her, you know, he was an alcoholic, a drug addict, uh, using her from uh, to get money, mm -hmm. and she was explaining how like how she had to to hold a shotgun to him to not let him get into the house. Damn. And so from 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 me listening to this um, and hearing how this like her son that was you know given into you know adoption. She was explaining how the one, the son that was adopted, is so much like her. They were both like track stars. They both had this engineering mindset. Like mm -hmm. they went to school for that. They they even went to the same university, uh, but yet they don't know anything about each other. Mm -hmm. And yet the one that she, the child that she did nurture 
grew up with this completely different value system than what she has. So, you know, I fell for her because, you know, I did not ex expect the story. And it was very eye-opening to, to hear about this um, because she was so sure on, like, it's trust, you know, and this is why it's trust. Yeah. So you hear a lot of those stories when, it, when you deal with, uh, like, interviewing with the older crowd. Uh, in the 20s, you know, it's still big-eyed. You know, you, yeah. you want to take on the world. Right. Uh, you want to make experiences still. Mm -hmm. at, at some point, whether it's like having a kid, for instance, like mm -hmm. your, your whole value system is yeah. then transitioned. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to value themselves, it is biologically rooted, in my opinion. So like the, the value systems that like we rely on, we're, we're passed on from like our parents. Mm -hmm. um, so this is something where sure we, we have our own choice on like what we hold dearly however the resources that were given was provided from our creators so yeah this again goes into the state of rebellion do we go against this sort of system and make our own or do we just use what's natural and just conserve what we already have been doing because this yeah. is perceived as the right way yeah, I mean, um, that actually sounds, that sounds a bit counterintuitive to me that, you know, when you say like value systems could be biologically inherited, mm. because to me, like I said, anthropologically looking at it, a lot of our value systems, values that we inherit are through our own experiences and through our culture and what our culture suggests. I'm sure if you ask the same question, in like different countries and diff with different religious beliefs and with different ideologies. Like for example, like if you ask the same question in the US and now that you ask the same question to people in here in Estonia, you get different answers. So I would say, I would think at least that um, the values and our value system is more culturally rooted than biological. But, um, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't deny that there is, like, a biological aspect to it as well. Well, I mean, the the value system itself is, like, cultivated within this cultural system. It's more so the biological value, like, this biological source. It's related to creating you, such as, you know, maybe you have, like, a, a gene malfunction or, you know, some mm. sort of genetic disorder. Right. This... This characteristic of your identity will alter your value system, mm -hmm. whether it's are you colorblind, yeah, um, so on. So like you know, it's it's not the the, the determinant, but it creates a sort of limitation because you know whether if you know if you're blind or deaf, for instance, like yeah, right your value start, vision and stuff like yeah, that a lot like, more than. But it's also not too far off to say that perhaps there is some nature in this nature versus yeah. nurture nature nature versus nurture debate mm -hmm. simply by the fact that as much as we've studied dna we don't fully understand the entire human genome right yeah. to get super technical here so yeah it could exist perhaps that there is something within our dna that is value-based mm -hmm. and is inherited but then yes if there was a difference perhaps it is this random mutation that well happens. i mean like especially in biosemiotics there's there's a genetic memory mm. and this is passed on like through the dna and, like, for me, for instance, like, thinking about, like, uh, a duckling jumping into the water for the first time. Mm-hmm. Do they, do they think they're their parents' size? You know, like, yeah, 
So yeah. what is, you have to look at like, what is the concept of the self first off right. as a duckling? And, you know, sure, they see the, the mom jump in, mm-hmm. but like, you know, this sort of knowing that like, it'll be okay. Yeah. This is something that's like biologically ingrained. Some so sort like, of instinctual programming. Yeah. But, the, yeah. but they're also like, imita- it's also imitative behavior, right? That's, that's kind of genetically programmed in them mm-hmm. because when I've seen, I think, uh, who's this, um... The guy in the fifties um, who who experimented with ducks and he's called the father of, uh, of ducks, <laughs> not ducks, <laughs> but like the study of animals. I don't know what the term is, but he basically programmed the ducks to think that he was he was the the mother of the ducks, mm-hmm. and the ducks okay. started following him mm-hmm. around and uh, believing that he was uh, their mother, and started imitating whatever the actions that he was doing. Well, so, like, going back to, like, this biological value, um, so I, I have uh, one fear. Mm-hmm. It's called tryptophobia. Tryptophobia? Yeah. Okay. The fear of cluster of holes. Uh, the fear of what? Cluster of holes. Cluster of? Holes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's... That's a it's new It's weird. One. You know, it's uh, something that, like, was at Walt Disney World. Mm-hmm. One day, like eight years old, right? Splash Mountain. Yeah, we're right at the top, and I see this this speaker that's designed to look like a rock, mm-hmm. and the the grid pattern in the speaker it just had this like very unorthodox beehive structure to mm-hmm. it, and I looked down, I was like, "Ooh, I don't like that," <laughs> and like it's one of these things that yeah. like it's uh, right. ingrained in my memory, uh, but like you know, this is something where I looked at it and it. It, right away, it caused like discomfort, and so I, I looked into more like what is this? You know what I mean? Because um, it, it's it's one of these things that it it turns your gut at times. It makes you lose focus. Uh, you kind of like get distracted on like what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so I looked at it, and it's one of these things that it's a it's rooted within like an organism's perception of dangerous animals. Mm-hmm. Right. So, like, this sort of pattern, it signifies that, like, warning. Mm-hmm. Um, so, obviously, it's this, it's this neurological sort of information that's being, like, transmitted to, like, me, you know, where is my gut, my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this is something where, like, I don't have control over it. It's yeah. not like I chose to, like, look at something this way. Right. Um, so, that's something, you know, that, you know, we... It, the cultural aspect definitely this is where we perform it this is a sandbox that Mm -hmm. we like prove who we are but like what we're intrinsically given with like stems from yeah I mean that fear of a fear of something like that uh, I I think would have definitely something to do with like your biological aspects I can definitely see it really being related to like biosemiotics like what you give meaning to and like yeah you, you fear things that are inherently mm-hmm. fearful fear causing within you yeah yeah i mean even like i think the majority of humans as well as most animals they have this intrinsic fear of snakes that sound of the hiss because they understand that like snakes are dangerous in almost every part of the world if there's a snake there's no point in going after it it's probably gonna kill you right mm-hmm. some sort mm-hmm. of venom. so yeah there's that as well yeah i mean that's like from an evolutionary point of view mm-hmm. yeah that's exactly Humans are, are are programmed to be afraid of snakes, 
I mean, that's again a different kind of a meta uh, a meaning mm. with that someone like Carl Jung spoke a lot about these archetypes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you have this individual uh, consciousness and individual beliefs and thoughts, but also as a collective, not just culturally, but as a collective of uh, a species, we have these kinds of patterns emerging that we that he calls archetypes. Mm hmm. the archetypes of the unconscious yeah i think that's that's really interesting as well that that we as a species can evoke this kind of behavior or patterns that we ourselves are not really aware of when we're conscious mm. yeah i mean even say your powerful value that you have with honesty i would say that is in the least in some part some sort of intrinsic evolutionary thing that you know we lived in tribes and so we needed trust and honesty right. in order to survive mm-hmm. however that's not always true given human history you yeah. can also lie exactly but it's usually not against our own all the time right mm-hmm. like just just to continue this architectural discussion here but yeah okay. yeah true yeah but like i said the 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 kind of honesty that i was referring to was more like an internal, internal honesty of course yeah because it kind of puts me off when people say that it's all good everything's going to be okay it's all rainbows like look at the rainbows outside and disregard all the suffering and the pain that life is causing you and like come on you can't just put that thing aside you're going to have to deal with it at one time in your life you know when i don't know thing shit's going to hit the fan at some point man you better be prepared for it so i think to mentally prepare for it you have to be honest with yourself and and prepare yourself that things are sometimes messed up and we just have to accept the fact and embrace that uh element of life that you know we don't know a lot of shit and the shit that we know sometimes is fucked up yeah we call that toxic positivity right yeah like, toxic always want to be positive exactly. yeah you're yeah. right like the second the shit hits the fan the kind of people who are in this mindset like that they, they don't know what to do they start freaking yeah. out right mm-hmm. it's like oh well, i thought life was all good like well, of course it's not yeah. but you know the question now perhaps that we we could move to is like why why do we feel this necessity to be toxically positive why is that a value for some people to be always positive all the time it seems very inhuman right like human human life is positives and negatives yeah. ups and downs i mean to me it baffles me how you cannot be depressed and anxious about life because because of life itself there's like like kierkegaard said it's so dizzying the the number of choices you have then the consequences that it could possibly lead to is is just unfathomable yeah so it, it should be you should be anxious and you should be depressed about life but but yeah like i said it's it's depressing but it's also there's something to ameliorate that depression which is that it's all meaningless it's all good because mm. as long as none of it has meaning it's you're good to go like you you don't have you don't have like this kind of a god figure or something um the death of god i mean that that's kind of what nietzsche was speaking about yeah. also right because yeah. when he said okay with all the scientific advancement and in the 19th century when people were starting to give up religion a lot more than in the 17th or the 16th century nietzsche was speaking about when he said god is dead he didn't mean like literally god is dead like a lot of people uh, take him to be a lot of people also mistakenly take nietzsche to be a nihilist which he wasn't uh, what nietzsche was intending to say there was that 
all right you've given god uh this value or you've placed god as the most powerful being as the most powerful value that you have and now that you're giving it up god is dead so what now what exactly are you going to replace it with because you've destroyed your fundamental beliefs your foundation some foundational values so what exactly are you going to do now and that's the question nature posed um to the people who were giving up religion i mean he was he was not uh, for religion he was definitely against religion and he always called this slave mentality and people who believe without any rational thought just following the leader exactly yeah. but but yeah that that's a that's a big problem and that's that's also and nietzsche and kierkegaard kind of fall into the same category to me where like also kierkegaard saying anxiety is the disease of freedom is also referring to that aspect of what nietzsche is saying which is that okay god is dead now you have infinite possibilities what exactly you're going to do now what yeah. like what values are going to choose Yeah, I mean, if we took this initial question back to the 16th or 17th century, I'm sure everybody, at least in Europe, would say, God, yeah, God right? like exactly that was the highest Nietzsche. value. Mm-hmm. And yeah, what Nietzsche was basically saying is that was no longer the case. Yeah. And so for him, nihilism, this loss of value and purpose was perhaps this necessary middleman between God being the highest value and whatever you wanted to be the highest value. Mm-hmm. So it was this sort of like in-between stage. So yeah, he wasn't nihilist. He was saying nihilism is perhaps this inevitable turn that every person in the world will face once they, I guess, start to see the world as it is. Right? Yeah. And I was having a discussion with uh, with a friend of mine named Simon yesterday, and he was also talking about this, out of this nihilistic thought emerge two kinds of people, doomers and bloomers. Mm. Like, doomers are people who accept nihilism and say okay fuck if inherently everything is meaningless why do anything yeah mm-hmm. why why pursue anything why be curious or why be uh, why be self authentic and and express uh, what yourself is intending to express just you know lay on the bed all day and you know kill people for what it, what's worth well, but so like one thing like I, i was looking at like some some writing i did last mm-hmm. night and i found this one paper when i was i was talking about being but then i take like a 180 and i start talking about the value of emptiness emptiness yeah mm-hmm. how and like i'm saying how like you know I, i see how emptiness is being more valuable than being itself because right. like from from emptiness it em- it emerges mm-hmm. you know we we rely on these like principles but like you know these like undefined principles of emptiness we need these blank parameters in yeah. order to work within this this text and it's um you know it's it's essentially associated with like because we associate meaning with stuff it's not like it's naturally there it's this connotative function that we associate with objects and but with emptiness though like matter just creates from it you know mm-hmm. like it's just have have something and from emptiness anything will happen yeah i'm sure like heidegger would have a lot to say about nothingness and emptiness because like But you yeah, know it, for me laying it like when i live in the basement no windows or anything it's just so dark and yeah. you just lay there and all you see is just darkness yeah this is when like your your mind and body are able to kind of 
connect. You're able to visually see nothing and mentally get to the point of seeing nothing. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a constant overthinker, stuff is always on your mind. Yeah. So by having this mental space of emptiness, True. whether it's like, you know, just clearing the clutter or yeah. by expanding this like mental view, you're able to then create from that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I still think that being is like more natural but i can see how emptiness um creates this this state of being this value for being yeah i guess yeah now that now that you say speak about emptiness now i i guess i understand why you value being so much rather than emptiness because you know if you take emptiness as like this physical state of isolation mm-hmm. i'm fine with that if i can be myself like I, that's what i did for five years like mm-hmm. like you know i was by myself like creating yeah just doing stuff on the water you know like sure like the the social communication wasn't there uh but it was still something that like you know going again to the curiosity this internal curiosity i just wanted to create Mm -hmm. i just wanted to 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 do that um so yeah it's you know isolation especially you know everybody has a little taste (laughs) of it now because of yeah 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. um you know it's mixed feelings but yeah it's you know it's something that like it's it's good for the soul. In my yeah. mm-hmm. I mean, it's the dichotomy, right? Like when you're, you value being because of emptiness, you value social interaction because of isolation, just like you value life because you die. And if like, I can't imagine what the human race would be like if we were like all immortal. Why would you do anything at all? Why would you place any value in anything that life gives you? If you're always going to be around, if you're always going to exist I think it's a, it's that dichotomy that life and death death kind of gives meaning to life and life kind of gives meaning to death and mm-hmm. yeah that, that kind of resonates with what you were saying there. All right. I think we can wrap the show there. That's episode 9 for you guys. And yeah, let me know what value you hold most dear to yourself or you hold most uh powerful in your life. and uh, uh perhaps we could have a discussion thank you for listening guys cheers bye bye bye